Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders here for our church. Uh, if this is your first time with us, we're really glad that you're here. Thanks for uh, coming and spending the morning with us. Uh, I am, am delighted to, uh, to preach as we begin our study of 2 Timothy this morning. Uh, I've been praying for this because I have a, a very important message for you all this morning from God. The Apostle Paul, who was a first century Christian missionary, he concluded his first letter to his protege Timothy with these words. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. That was 1 Timothy 6.20. And through that first letter, which we just finished studying over the last few weeks, Paul had explained to Timothy what was the heart of the message about Jesus. And Paul systematically worked through all the different segments of the church's life to show how to behave in accordance with this message. And he talked about church leaders and prayer, serving the needy, social roles, and our attitude toward wealth. And chapter 6, verse 20 of that letter boils everything he said down to a simple instruction. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Because the church is not about accumulating wealth or power or self-fulfillment. It's not about exercising influence over the masses or finding self-fulfillment and doing some good for the world. The church of Jesus Christ is about receiving a trust from God and guarding that trust behaving in accord with it and propagating it around the globe. That trust is what we call the message about Jesus Christ. We commonly refer to it as the good news or the gospel. Now this morning we begin our study of Paul's final letter. This was the last thing he would write. We call it Second Timothy. A few years have passed since he wrote the first letter to Timothy, and his situation has changed. In 1 Timothy 3.14, Paul said that he was hoping to visit Timothy soon, and he wrote that first letter just in case he got held up and couldn't make it in a timely fashion. But now in 2 Timothy, Paul has no hope of ever coming to visit Ephesus again, where Timothy is. In fact, Paul is desperately hoping that Timothy can come, can travel to come and see him, because Paul is now trapped in a dungeon. He's locked in chains, and he doesn't expect to get out. He knows his execution is imminent. He's a dead man walking. And in those days, your prison expenses weren't covered by tax revenue. You didn't have standard-issue jumpsuits or square meals, or exercise shifts. If you didn't have friends or family caring for you in prison, you didn't eat. You didn't stay warm in winter, and you didn't have any form of entertainment. So Paul is hungry, he's exhausted, he's bored, and he's at the end of his rope. But he has one final letter in him for his main man. He has one Last thing, he wants young Timothy to remember in case he remembers nothing else. He has one 
It's one hint that was dropped at the end of his first letter, which now he explains further in the second letter. That thing is to guard the deposit entrusted to you. In other words, Paul wants Timothy to guard the good news, to guard the message about Jesus Christ. This is the main point of this letter, 2 Timothy. Guard this good news. And in order for this guarding to take place, Paul begins chapter 1 of 2 Timothy by explaining what the church needs most. If you have one of the church Bibles, we're going to be on page 578, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul begins by explaining what the church needs most. Perhaps you've wondered whether our greatest need as a church is, is more income. Maybe we need a youth group or stronger outreach events. Maybe we need a full-time pastor or a, a stronger heating system. According to Paul, what the church needs most is, you see it on your outline, people to guard the message. And in particular, people who know how to guard the message. And that's what the church needs most because not many will guard the message. That's where we're going this morning. Let me pray and then I'll read first, 2 Timothy 1. Father in heaven, please help us now by the power of your spirit to understand what you have to teach us. Please make us to be people who will guard this message, who know how to guard the message, because not many will guard the message. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For I was, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. 
follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. The first thing, what the church needs most, the first point on your outline is people to guard the message. After his greeting in the first two verses, Paul thanks God in verse 3 whenever he thinks of Timothy, which he says is constantly night and day. He's thinking about this guy a lot. And he thanks God because he's constantly thinking of two things with respect to Timothy. First, in verse 4, he says, I remember how sad you were. I remember your tears. Probably when they last said goodbye, when they last saw each other. And in verse 5, the second thing he is thinking about is how sincere Timothy's faith in Christ is. This faith is what keeps him strong in the Lord, which reflects the quality of his upbringing, his mother. And his grandmother had a tremendous influence on him for the sake of Christ. These two things, Timothy's tears and Timothy's faith. Why would these two things be so encouraging to Paul, causing him to thank God constantly? It's because they are evidence. They are evidence that Timothy is exactly the right man for the job. The right man for the job of guarding the deposit. How do I know that? How do I know that this is evidence? It's because the main idea of this first paragraph comes in verse 6. In verse 6, where Paul says, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. You see, what Paul is after here, why he's, why he's at least starting his letter to Timothy, what he's trying to say is that he wants Timothy to light the fire. He wants Timothy to inflame his passion. He wants Timothy to stand strong because Timothy received a gift from God. Fan into flame the gift of God. Timothy received a gift from God when Paul laid his hands on him. Presumably, he's talking about when Timothy was ordained into ministry, when he was commissioned for his ministry in Ephesus by Paul. Now, there are many theories from commentators about what exactly the gift is that Timothy received when he was commissioned for this ministry. Perhaps it was his skill with preaching or handling the word. Perhaps it was his gift was the pastoral ministry itself. Perhaps the gift was endurance in his faith despite opposition. In the end, we really don't know what exactly the gift was. Paul doesn't spell it out here. He assumes, Timothy, you know what I'm talking about. All we know is it has something to do with Timothy's leadership because the gift is connected to his ministry through the laying on of Paul's hands. And verse 7 suggests that Timothy has lost sight of this gift through fear. Because Paul reminds him, 
that God has given us a spirit, not of fear. But the spirit we have is one of power and love and self-control. These are all the things you need to fulfill this ministry. The spirit of God who gives you the power to do it, the love for others, and the self-control to stay the course. So Paul wants Timothy to reignite this ministry, to rekindle the fire, to restart his engines, so to speak. Why? Why? What is he inflaming here? And we'll get to it in a bit, but I'll tell you, the main idea behind all of this comes in verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is the same thing he said at the very end of his first letter. He's saying, this is what it's about. You're rekindling that gift for this purpose. Here's the Spirit of God given to Timothy at work for the sake of Jesus Christ. Paul wants Timothy to guard what has been entrusted to him. And he must rekindle his gift to make this happen. And he has every divine resource at his disposal to make this happen. And he has a clear mandate and a commission to make this happen. Now, you may remember from 1 Timothy, if you've read it or if you've been with us the last few weeks, that there are some real issues going on in Ephesus where Timothy has been ministering. There are false teachers who are speculating on the law and leading people astray into controversy. There are people who are swerving from the true faith. There are needy people who are not being cared for. And the church probably doesn't have the greatest leaders. But there is one person who can make a real difference. There is one person who was asked to remain in Ephesus to set these things straight. There is one person who has the gifting and the skills and the knowledge and the training required for this situation. There is one person whom God appointed for this very task. In other words, there is one person who is in the right place at the right time for just the right reason. This person, of course, is Timothy. It's Timothy. The point is this, friends. For the kingdom of God to advance, what the church needs most is people to guard the message. How does this apply? Please, believe you can do this. Believe you can do this. Just like Timothy, you are the right person in the right place, at the right time. It is no accident that you are here this morning. It is no accident that you are a part of our church. God put you here on purpose so you could take up this charge. So you could fan into flame the gift he's given you to this end, that by the Holy Spirit and his power and love and self-discipline, you might guard the deposit given to you. Your participation in this church is no accident. And so this morning, to my fellow elders, I say, your job is to guard this message about Jesus Christ. Don't let it go. Don't let this church drift. Whenever you disciple a person, whenever you lead a team meeting, 
Whenever you train a new leader, whenever you plan an agenda, whenever you care for someone in need, keep Jesus front and center. Elders who do that are what this church needs most. And to the rest of the members of this church, I say, don't wait for the elders to do this. Your job is to guard this message about Jesus. Don't let it go. Don't let this church drift. Whenever you disciple somebody, whenever you attend a meeting, whenever you accomplish a task, whenever you discuss the sermon in small groups, whenever you serve in the nursery, when you care for someone in need, keep Jesus front and center. People who do that are what this church needs most. Let me zero in a little bit more to the teenagers and the young people. We need your help. Don't wait for the adults to do this. Your job is to guard the message about Jesus. Some of you may have only a few more years as a part of this church left. And then you might go to college or you might move away. And whether you stay here or you go somewhere else, please remember that Jesus is everything. Don't let this message go. Don't let this church drift. Help us to hold strong to this message into the next generation. We need you to make that happen. Now, for all of you, perhaps you're thinking, how do we do that? What does it look like to guard the message? How do we stay this course? And what can I possibly offer to this movement of God's kingdom to preach Christ and to offer repentance and forgiveness to all nations? Well, that's where Paul goes in the second paragraph. We need people who know how to guard the message. Good intentions aren't enough. You need to know how to do it right. And in this paragraph, verses 8 to 14, Paul gives three commands to Timothy. I think the third one is the overarching command that summarized the whole chapter, and I already told you that, verse 14, guard the good deposit. But I think the other two commands he gives here break that down for us in a few key steps. They show us how to go about guarding this message, so let me walk it through. First, letter A comes in verse 8, don't be ashamed of the message or its messengers. Don't be ashamed about the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Because, friends, why does Paul start here? As soon as we attempt to guard the message, we will suffer for it. And those that we love and trust who are guarding the message, they will suffer for it. And our first reaction to suffering tends to be shame. Because suffering feels unnatural. It feels like something is wrong. It feels like we're doing something wrong. And it causes us to question whether we have done something wrong and whether we should do something different to alleviate the suffering. So Paul says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 
Remember, Paul was chained up in a dungeon. And he was put there because the conservative religious people, those who claimed to be God's people, had put him there for violating their traditions. He had stepped all over their toes. We're so used to hearing today about Paul being in prison that we fail to realize what that might have cost him. Oh yeah, Paul was in prison when he wrote this. But but honestly, what would you do if I was thrown into prison for disturbance of the peace, for intolerance, for hate crimes because of the gospel, because of holding fast to the message? Assuming that it was for that and not because I actually did something terribly wrong. If that were the case, would you still attend the church I had been associated with? Would you still keep me as a friend on Facebook? Would you help to care for my wife and children in my absence? I'll be honest. I have lost friends over far less suffering for Christ than being in dungeon. In a previous church, in a different town, a few outsiders once came along and started spreading rumors about me and the ministry that I was a part of. They did not appreciate the message we preached. Specifically, there were people who really targeted the call to discipleship, the fact that we were asking people to give up everything to follow Jesus. Now, some of these critics, I want to be totally honest, some of them had legitimate gripes. I'm not saying I was utterly without sin. And there are some things I had to repent of in the process. But many of those gripes were then overgeneralized and blown way out of proportion so that instead of saying things like, Peter hurt me when he said X, Y, and Z, they were saying things like, Peter is a hurtful person who always says hurtful things. And I was shocked that as the criticism spread, Aaron and I began to lose friends. Real friends, close friends, who had been close confidants with us and partners. People who heard some of the rumors and they wouldn't even ask our perspective on what was being said. They would just condemn us and start shunning us without a trial, without an investigation. People would put us in black or white categories such that either we were righteous and trustworthy altogether, or we were terrible and repulsive altogether. Very few people had the maturity to help us through our real weaknesses without turning against us completely. People were ashamed of the messenger. Friends, to guard this message, you must not be ashamed of the message such that you back down from it at the first hint of resistance. But at the same time, you must also not be ashamed of its messengers, such that you are afraid to be associated with those who have some sort of social stigma for faithful ministry. Now, please note, I am not saying that we should ever be blindly loyal to any leader or to any friend at any cost. When there is evidence of real wrongdoing, we must always call it what it is and hold people to account for it. But when there is more heat than light, when there are harsh words without hard evidence, when there is social stigma without moral failure, then we must have the courage and the maturity to see through it and to stand fast on the gospel. 
This is so hard to do, but it's what it means to guard the deposit. You have to guard it because there are forces actively fighting against you. It will not be easy. It will feel like you are under attack. And in verse 13, Paul says you actually have to trust God to guard it for you. Because God will preserve both his message and his messengers until the last day. So that's the first thing of how to guard this, is not to be ashamed of the message or its messengers. But second, letter B, follow the pattern of sound words. I saved this one for second, partly because Paul saves it for second. He doesn't say it outright until verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words. But also, partly because I wanted to give you all the bad news about suffering first. Because this, what that makes what I'm about to say really good news. Because the good news, this good news, makes all of that suffering and all of the attendant shame worth it. I've been mentioning the message all throughout this sermon. Verses 9 and 10 are where we finally get to see Paul remind us of what the message is that we are to guard. Take a look at that with me. Verse 9. He starts out saying, God saved us. You see, we did not and we cannot save ourselves. No religion is true if it requires us to do all the right things in hopes that God will be happy with us in the end. He goes on to say that God called us to a holy calling. He saved us and called us to a holy calling. In other words, our mission to guard this message was not our idea. It wasn't Timothy's idea and it wasn't Paul's idea. This is all a part of God's plan to transform the peoples of the world into his image. He called us to a holy calling. He goes on to say that God's salvation, he says he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. So God's salvation has nothing to do with our good works. It has everything to do with his good purpose and grace to repair what is broken, his favor to replace what has been lost, to purify what has been defiled and to restore what, us all to what we were meant to be. And then he says at the end of verse 9, that this grace is what he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Get the idea that this has nothing to do with your efforts? God took care of it before the ages began. God took care of it before you were even born before your parents were born, before there even was such a thing as parents or being born. God settled your salvation before there was even a you. And if it was taken care of before there was a you, and before you even had a chance to sin, that must mean that your sin can't screw it up, can't ever screw it up. So don't beat yourself up and don't beat others down. Delight in the abundance of God's grace. But in verse 10, Paul goes on to tell us more about this message, that this, this, uh, this gospel, or this grace, has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. 
So God's grace was manifested in time, at a moment in time, when Jesus Christ appeared on the earth, when God became a man, when he lived the life we could never live, when he died the death that we deserve to die, and then when he rose from the dead to prove that he was the real deal. And what did he do then? He goes on in verse 10 to say, Jesus Christ abolished death. Get that? He abolished death. See, this is why in John 11, Jesus could say that anyone who believes in him will never die. I once overheard a dear brother telling his child after that child's grandfather had passed away, it's okay, Christians don't die. They just leave their sin behind. You see, Jesus abolished death for those who believe in him. And he goes on to say, Jesus brought life and immortality to light. See, Jesus is the one who made it possible to have a fulfilled life, to have eternal life. Whoever has the Son of God has this life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have this life. And Paul ends up verse 10 by saying that Jesus accomplished all these things through the gospel. Verse 11, for which Paul was appointed a preacher. You see, the message, the gospel, makes all the difference. In this message, we believe and we proclaim that God the Father planned salvation in eternity past before the ages began. And Jesus Christ, God the Son, accomplished salvation in history past when he became a man and he died and he rose again. And God the Holy Spirit executes salvation. He implements it in the present time when he empowers his people to to guard the message about Jesus and when he gives them the faith to bank their lives in this message. Here is the pattern of sound words that Timothy must follow, verse 13. This message has been guarded through the generations so that it could come down to us and each of us could hear it even today and believe it and find life. And it is this same message that we now guard and proclaim. It is this story, this pattern of sound words that we protect from any adjustment and any defilement. How does this apply? Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Or maybe you're not sure even whether you're a Christian. If you haven't yet thrown in your lot with Jesus, death ought to be a terrifying thing for you and for me. Only one thing can abolish death and give you life and immortality. It's the good news about Jesus Christ who came from heaven to earth to pay for our sin with his own blood. And this church exists to preserve this message. I invite you to take this to heart. Can you find such life anywhere else? The kind of life 
that you've tried to attain on your own? Have you found such joy and acceptance anywhere else? And to those of you who do believe, who, do, who are following Christ, I call you today to follow this pattern of sound words. And don't ever be ashamed of this message or its faithful messengers. What the church needs most is people who know how to guard the message. People who will stay the course at these two things. Not being ashamed of the message or its messengers because they are following the pattern of sound words. They've got the message right. Let me close briefly with why we need these people and why you must be these people for Grace Fellowship Church. It's because in the last paragraph, not many, we learn, not many will guard the message. In verse 15, Paul laments the fact that all who are in Asia have turned from him. It's interesting that he doesn't say that they abandoned Christ, but that they turned from me. Many believers and former colleagues of his have become ashamed of him and thereby have deserted him. Paul even names two of the key players. Perhaps because Timothy had a relationship with these two guys and was tempted to to hear them out and adopt their perspective. Now Paul is clearly not speaking literally here that all in Asia have turned away from him because Timothy is in Asia. And Timothy hasn't yet turned away from him. The city of Ephesus was in the Roman province of Asia. By Asia, he doesn't mean the continent Asia as we talk about it today. He means the Roman province of Asia, which was mostly like modern-day Turkey. Paul's either just expressing his deep depression with very strong language, or maybe he's referring primarily to not all the churches, but his entire band of missionaries, which has dispersed. But either way, or if the truth lies somewhere else, Paul is really discouraged. He is really discouraged. Paul can think of only one guy who has stayed the course. He's the only one who stood fast, guarding the deposit and despising the shame of suffering for it. His name is Onesiphorus. Paul talks about him in the next few verses. He had served the Lord Jesus well at Ephesus. In verse 18, says, Timothy, you know how he served in Ephesus. So Onesiphorus was, was from that church. So Timothy would know him. But Onesiphorus didn't stay there in Ephesus with Timothy to help the church. Instead, we learn in verse 17, Onesiphorus came all the way to Rome looking for Paul. And he didn't give up until he found him. Which is no easy task. Remember, there is no internet. There's no GPS. I don't think there were courthouses to find out even where Paul was being held in custody. And in verse 16, we learn that Onesiphorus often refreshed Paul. This got intensely practical. He probably brought him food and medicine, maybe some clothing, especially conversation and companionship. This is intensely practical. It's the kind of stuff that Jesus himself said makes all the difference between the blessed sheep and the cursed goats. In his parable in Matthew 25, when he said, the king will answer to them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, as you, as you, you fed, fed them and gave them drink and visited them in prison and took care of them when they were sick. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, Jesus says, you did it to 
me. So why did Onesiphorus do all this? Verse 16, Paul gives the reason. It was because he was not ashamed of my chains. You see this? Here is the only guy from Asia that Paul can think of who gets it. The guy who is doing his part to guard this deposit. He is the kind of guy that this church needs most. He is the kind of person that Paul encourages Timothy to be. And it's what this letter of 2 Timothy is all about. Let me frame my application to you as a question. Friends, I expect we are not far from a time when there will be more drastic suffering and shame for preaching Jesus Christ. And here's my application for you. Will you still be here with us when that time comes? Will you still be here with us when that time comes? Will you be steadfastly guarding the message by the power of God's Holy Spirit? Soon, it may be illegal to say in public that Jesus Christ is the only way to get to heaven and be made right with God. It may be illegal to say in public that Jesus' plan for human existence, including who may marry whom, that Jesus' plan is the best plan. It will likely be considered a hate crime to have male elders as a church or to speak of sin or to ask people to give up what they most hold dear to walk with Christ. Friends, in our cultural climate, it's already increasingly common to equate hate or abuse with disagreement. Such that if you say something I disagree with, then I feel bad, and therefore you must be a hateful person. Just look at the public discourse. You can see it all over the place. And the closer we get to that time where this actually becomes illegal to do these things, illegal to disagree, the more people there will be who feel ashamed and who turn away from the message or its messengers. Not many will stay the course. And we see it already, almost weekly, as more and more famous Bible teachers come out in affirmation of things the gospel prohibits. Will you still be with us? Will you still be with Paul? Will you still be with Christ? And I don't just ask this question of you all on that side of the podium. I ask myself this same question because I am just as prone to shame and displeasure at suffering and I feel the pull toward compromise daily. What the church needs most is people to guard the message. And in particular, we need people who know how to guard the message because not many will guard this message. Now, this isn't all doom and gloom because the Lord is with us. The spirit he has given us is not a spirit of fear. It is a spirit of power 
and love and self-control. And this same Spirit empowers us to guard the good deposit. And so our hope is not in ourselves to get it all just right and to stay the course in our own strength. Our hope is in our God who knew all that we would face before the ages began. And he saved us and he called us to a holy calling and he is able. How does he put it? Verse 13. I'm sorry, not 13. Verse 12. He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to us. May the Lord grant to us all to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, who can do this? Not one of us. We need you. We need your Holy Spirit to guard this deposit. Please help us, we pray. Grant us more of you. Grant us more of Jesus that we would be so compelled and enraptured and captivated by him that we could never let him go or be ashamed of his messengers. Help us to be these kinds of people. And Father, please grant us more of these people for our church, for your church around the world in our day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.